0: It'll be 10 years, Memorial Day weekend, that Rachel and I, despite only having been married for six months, still filled up the biggest U-Haul that U-Haul rents and loaded up all of our things, put our puppy in the front seat of the U-Haul with me and headed out across the country from Illinois to Vermont, ten years ago this May. And as I reflect on the story of Easter, I reflect on new birth, this idea that God is always looking to grow us and change us and make us more like him. We always seek to be, I always seek to be a different, a better person tomorrow than I was yesterday, continuously conformed to his image, continuously sanctified more and more to look like him, and I'll tell you this, nothing will test your security in the person that God has turned you into like moving to your hometown of 4,000 people in your mid-20s. Nothing will test how much you believe you are really a new person, a different person, a more mature person, a person who does less embarrassing things perhaps than moving back to your hometown. And it was certainly tested for me. Even now, another ten years after that, I can hardly go to the gas station without seeing someone that I went to high school with. Anybody else from a small town? Yeah, we got a, we got we've got a few of you, a few of us. And there's a lot of reasons that's difficult, right? Embarrassing things that we did in high school, phases that we went through, that sort of thing. One of the hardest, of the hardest I think is the names, the names that we've been called. I was at, my wife Rachel teaches violin. She runs a violin program at a, a small elementary school in the town of Sheffield, Vermont. It's about 20 minutes north of us. I was there for a concert last spring and one of the dads of one of her students came up and said hi to me and knew my name and then I realized after a couple minutes of talking to him that we went to high school together and he was not particularly kind to me. And I don't know if he even remembered this, but I remembered the names that he used to call me walking down the hallway in school. Most of which I couldn't say in church if I wanted to. Those sorts of things stick with us, don't they? And as adults, adults the name calling kind of goes away. Right? It's not the same, especially elementary school and then into middle school. And Name-calling is big at those ages. And you might have some people in your life or that you work with or that you know. Not that it doesn't happen, but it doesn't happen quite as much as it does. But we still struggle with that, don't we, as adults? I think as adults, we often call ourselves more names than other people do. Right? It's this idea of what is my identity? How do I see myself? How am I defined? That sort of thing. I don't have to tell you that names are important in the Bible. Identities are important. We see, obviously, the most famous example is Abram and his name being changed to Abraham, symbolic of the new purpose in life that God is giving him. But this idea of identity what we're called, what we're known by. And some of you, I'm sure, many of us, have been known for things, have been known by names that we would really like to leave in the past. Sometimes we struggle with that because we feel it's unjustified. We feel that we are called a name, we are given an identity that we don't deserve. And that's really difficult. On the other hand, sometimes we're given a name and an identity we do feel we deserve. And that's even harder to let go of when it's a negative identity. We struggle with that. Whether it's justified or not in our eyes, however... We need to realize and we need to recognize that those negative identities are not the identities and the names that God gives us. And so what we're going to be talking about today, I'm just going to tell you where we're going to end up, and then we'll walk there, is releasing that, letting go of that. My prayer as I prayed for this service throughout the week was that for as many of us as needed. That injustice that was done in the form of identities and names would be made right. We're going to begin that by doing the same and looking at uh, one of what's become one of my my favorite stories in the New Testament. We're going to be in John chapter 20 this morning. If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles. We're going to begin in verse 19, but we've, before we get there, the, the reading for this morning ends with verses 20 and 21. And it's, it's interesting, this isn't the end of the book, but John gives us this little disclaimer about the purpose of his book. He says this in, uh, in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John gives us right here this disclaimer of, while you're reading my book, there's two reasons to read this. And essentially what he's saying is, if you come to my gospel, if you come to this writing with any agenda other than these two things, you're in the wrong place. And those two things are... That we believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, we have life in his name. If you're an old-time Nazarene, this is what John is saying. John is saying, this book is written so you can be saved and sanctified. Right? In theological terms, that's the purpose. That you believe in Jesus, and that through believing in him, you are reborn. Right? We're, we're immediately taken back to the conversation with Nicodemus of new birth, new life, that you may have life in his name. And so if we come to this book with anything other than those two, if we look for any message other than those two, we're looking in the wrong place. And it also reminds us that he was very particular about what he included. And that's important for a lot of discussions. It's especially important this morning that the details matter. Let's get into our passage. Uh, We're going to pick up in verse 19, Jesus appearing to the disciples. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands in his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. One of the most memorable stories in the New Testament, the story of Thomas. Who we always refer to as Doubting Thomas, right? Now, let me say this before we get any farther. I originally did this study just a few years ago. I have spent my entire life calling him Doubting Thomas. I have, I'm sure, although I don't know that I have proof, I am sure that from the pulpit I have called him Doubting Thomas. But something occurred to me a few years ago as I was studying this passage in in greater depth in my prayer time. it, It occurred to me that nowhere in Scripture is Thomas given that name. Nowhere in Scripture is he referred to as Doubting Thomas. Now, I believe I have seen, and this one doesn't, I believe I have seen Bibles where the section heading... Said doubting Thomas. Does anybody happen to have one? Does anybody's Bible say doubting Thomas in it? I believe I found at least one one time, which is a good reminder that, in case you didn't notice, section headings are not in the original text. <laughs> right? So be careful with those. Your section headings are a sermon. It's not the Bible. All right? They're not bad. They're helpful. It helps us find the stories. Not bad but not scripture. I realized, man, it doesn't say Doubting Thomas anywhere, but if if you never read a Bible and just spent a lot of time in church, not recommended, but if you did that, you would think the Bible said Doubting Thomas because we say it like it's scripture. I have been in so many, and this really bothers me now that I've done this study, but I've been in so many church services where... Either the preacher or even people yelling it out from the crowd. When anybody mentions Thomas, someone yells out, Doubting Thomas, right? Or someone's reading a list of disciples and they throw the doubting in there, right? You've got Simon Peter, you've got James, you've got Doubting Thomas. Throw it in. But it never says it. And then I looked a little further and I realized even more than that, this passage Gives him a different nickname. Do you realize that? The twin. It's the word Didymus. Growing up, when I when I quizzed on this in high school, when I quizzed on the Gospel of John, back in was that 2002? I know what really long ago for some of you. When I quizzed on this. The, the NIV portions we had at the time, it was Didymus, which is tricky because it just sounds like a random Greek word. I always assume, even when I quizzed on it and studied this um, in in depth, I just assumed that that was a Greek name or an Aramaic name and we had the English and we had the... But no. The word, the name Didymus, it means the twin. So I began to think about it and realize wait a second, not only have we made up a name for this poor guy, and it's an insulting one, not only did we make up a name, but... The, the word, the Bible, actually gives him another nickname that none of us remember unless we've studied it. And I began to think that that might be a problem. So then I began to study more and think about, well, what is then the purpose of this nickname? Because John is pretty clear as we began with that of what the purpose of the book is. And he's also very clear that he could have written a lot more. He specifically chose stories and specifically told those stories in such a way that it would enable us to both or either believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing have life in his name. So why did he include that? And it's interesting, John actually does it twice. There's another passage where he refers to Thomas as the twin. It's back in John chapter 11. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to. This is the death of Lazarus. And so Lazarus becomes ill. I'm just going to summarize. They send word to Jesus. It says Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Um, So he... I won't get into it. It's a funny passage because when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two days longer, which doesn't make any sense. Um, but that's a different sermon. So then then they go and the disciples, uh, let's, um, where do we want to start reading here? <laughs> uh, then at, let's, let's go verse seven. Then after this, He said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered. He talks about 12 hours in the day. He says our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Uh, The disciples say if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover, uh, etc., etc., etc. He ends verse 15 with, but let us go to him. And then here's our verse. So Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when you first read that, this isn't looking better for Thomas, right? He's kind of playing into the sort of doubting, sort of pessimistic image that we've always had of him. But as I compared these two passages side by side, I realized this. In this passage... Jesus announces that they're going to Lazarus. All of the disciples, right? All of the disciples said to him, and we're not given the quote. It just says the disciples, plural, said to him, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going to go there again. So we assume there was some sort of conversation there, right? The disciples didn't just all in unison say the exact same words. That that sort of thing doesn't happen, right? There was some sort of... Discussion there. And then we get the quote from Thomas saying to the fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And so Thomas isn't the only one in this passage that's upset or thinks it's a bad idea to go to Lazarus. All of the disciples think it's a bad idea. We just get the tw- the quote from Thomas, who's called the twin. And then if we flip back to our original passage, we realize this. We all know, and I've heard so many times, that Thomas said, I won't believe until I see. To summarize, right? Thomas said that. But look at the rest of the disciples. Do any disciples believe before they see? No. Right? The women see Jesus, and they go back and report it, and... So the disciples weren't glad when they heard that Jesus was raised from the dead from the women. They were glad when they saw it, when it was presented to them physically. So the reality of the story is that all of the disciples required physical proof of the resurrection. And so when we get to the end of this, and Jesus is talking to Thomas, and he says to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's not talking to Thomas. I've always read that as Jesus talking to doubting Thomas. He's talking to all the disciples. So here's what we realize. John is a storyteller. When we look at the beginning of the gospel, we don't get a genealogy. We don't get a bunch of dates. We don't get the circumstances. We don't hear about a census and who ordered the census and where Joseph was from. We don't get those details. We get a philosophical story, a narrative of sorts. That's the way John writes. So then we begin to understand how he's using Thomas as a literary character. Thomas is the guy that says what everybody else is thinking. Thomas is the guy that expresses what everyone else is feeling. Say, so, well, if he's the twin, who's the other one? Right? That's the that's the really the question. If he's the twin, who's the other one? Now, I've heard people say. Um, the belief was that Jesus and Thomas really looked alike and so he was called the twin because he and Jesus looked similar and that's why Judas had to identify Jesus in the garden because anybody else could have accidentally grabbed Thomas and it had to be one of the, the disciples that identified Jesus so they knew it was the right guy and they didn't accidentally arrest Now, I've read that in enough places that it's worth mentioning. The Bible certainly doesn't say that or imply that. Um, And I don't know why we would have to talk about that back with Lazarus. So, for me, as I've studied, this is the interpretation that makes a lot more sense. But I like to be upfront with what's out there. That if Thomas is the twin, who's the other one? Well, it's everybody, it's the disciples. It's also me, it's also you, at times. So we begin to get this understanding that Thomas isn't just the one disciple that doesn't believe in Jesus. That he's not just the guy that messes up in this passage. Who Jesus says isn't as blessed as the others or others. He's in the same boat as all the other disciples. Now, there's a lot we can do with just that, but here's how I want to look at it this morning. Thomas wasn't named Doubting Thomas by the world. It wasn't. It wasn't high school bullies. It wasn't pagans it wasn't evil people that named him that it was the church and what we have to realize is that our humanity has this we are bent to defining people other people and ourselves by our worst moments it's it just it's it's a natural it's a natural, just instinctual thing that, that those are the things that, that stand out. We are so quick to name and define people, ourselves and others, by their times of weakness, by, by the mistakes, by their faults, by the things that they are least skilled in. But that's not the way God defines us and sees us. Where the world will define us by our weaknesses, and when we rely on our flesh, we define others by their weaknesses, God defines us by our strengths. Where the world will define you by your failures, God defines you by the purpose he has for you in his kingdom. The world will come to you and say, Here is my accusation, it's justifiable. Because it's justifiable to call him Doubting Thomas. He did have doubts. I can can make a case for that. It's justifiable. And this is why it's so hard. If the world came to me and said, you're a loser because you have pink hair, I'm not going to worry too much about that because I very clearly don't. Where we get in the trouble is when the world comes at us with accusations and they're justified. Right? The world's accusations of you will be justified, but God's name that he gives you is unchallengeable. It cannot be challenged. It cannot be overthrown. Last one the names and identities the world has for you will be earned. I didn't deserve to be treated the way I sometimes was growing up, but I earned most of those. I was a socially awkward kid. I earned those titles. God's names for you are given. They are bestowed upon you. It doesn't make him any less real. In fact, I would argue that it's the opposite. God's name for you is given to you. So we have this story of Thomas. My hope... My hope as I stand on my little soapbox for a moment is that you stop using the term doubting Thomas. It's a little, little bit of a soapbox sermon here. But mostly, it's that you can be reminded of how easily we slip into that, how easily we slip into defining ourselves and other people by our lowest by our weakest, by our worst. Even the best of us can slip into that, can fall into that, and so perhaps the way you see yourself, even though it's justifiable, is not what God has for you. Even if you can give all of the reasons, all of the examples of how you've been a failure in the past, that says, I don't, I don't really care about that. I'm not concerned with how much you failed. I'm concerned with God speaking to you. I'm concerned with how much I want you to succeed, how much I want you to grow. So, it's Communion Sunday. We're going to do... Something a little bit extra, if we could have our ushers come. There's a lot of reasons we celebrate communion, and I'll never say all of them in one service, because then you'd be way too hungry by the time we actually got to it. One of them, one of the reasons we take communion is this it's tangible and it's physical. You hold it in your hand and you taste it in your mouth. And though it's often just a small, just a small morsel. It provides sustenance, it provides nutrition. And so in just a few moments, as you all come, you'll receive the cup, you'll receive the bread, you're going to receive something else as well. Um, on either side there's going to be one extra person and they've got some little name tags that I made up and they're different there's a handful of, of different ones in there and you don't get to pick although I went back and forth on that and it says on it hello God's word says I am at least I think that's what it says says something very close to that. God's word says I am. And then there is something written on it. I'll say this, every single one of these is something that applies to everyone in this room. Every single one of them is true for every single one of you. So, and that's and it's scriptural and it's solid. So you're not allowed to take one and say this doesn't apply to me. You might want to And I hope that you get one that you want to say this doesn't apply to me because then God can challenge you in that. So what we're going to do is you'll come up, you'll get your elements, and you'll get your card, and I'll have you go to your seats. We're just going to spend a few minutes in prayer, silent reflection individually, to reflect on what it says on that card, and then we'll take the elements together. And it's a third physical reminder that you're going to get this morning. It's not a sacrament. It's not. It's a physical reminder. I wanted you to have something to put in your hand. And they're not sticky. They don't have adhesive on them. I could have done that, but the sticky ones also last about 10 minutes. I wanted to give you something that, if it's something that speaks to you, if it's something you need to be reminded of, if it's something you don't quite yet believe that it could go with you. So there's a couple options for how you might respond or feel about the name that you receive. It might be something that you fully believe, you fully embrace, and it will be a wonderful reminder. It may be something that you are asking God for. It may be something that you look at it and you say, God, I really want this, please give it to me. And your, your prayer is a prayer of petition. And for some of you, it might be something that you receive it and you feel a little bit of anger. And you say, this isn't me. This does not describe me. This is not who I am. This is not what I do. I don't embody this. You may be tempted to hand it back and ask for another one. And say, I'm sorry, I you might be tempted to say it would be dishonest for me to receive this. I can't. I can't label myself this way. And especially if that's the case. You're not allowed to trade with your neighbor. But it's okay to sit in that discomfort. And it's okay for you to say, God, I don't even feel like I can ask for this. I... I don't feel like this describes me. And just say, God, I I need you to open my heart to receiving this, to receiving this name, receiving this identity. So I don't know which of those three. or Maybe you'll make up a different one. I don't know. But I want to make sure you have permission to wrestle with this. And maybe this will be easy for everybody. I don't know. Maybe it won't. But I know sometimes I've got difficulty accepting the things that God says about me because they really seem far fetched. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray over the elements, and then uh, I would ask you to come and make sure you get one of everything. Take your seats, and then we'll we'll eat and drink together. Father, we are so grateful for the names that you give us that you speak to us with love and compassion and grace. We're grateful, Lord, that when we encounter you, when we meet you, when you come into our lives, we become new. We become people who once were one way and now we're another, we're something different. We are not who we were Before, and as much as those old names and identities try to follow us and chase us and drag us back to where we were, we know, Lord, that there is hope for new life, that we can be more than what we were, that if we weren't loved, we can be loved, no matter how much we've done, we can be forgiven. that none of our identities are strong enough to stick when you wash us clean. So Lord, as we take some time in these moments to allow you to speak, I don't know what messages you have. This is where I stop preaching and let you take over completely. I pray that we'll be open whether you want to challenge us or assure us this morning, I pray that our hearts be open.